Good morning, everybody. My name is Lois, and I'm an alcoholic and a member of the Greenwich Village Group in New York City. Uh, it's my pleasure to be chairing another meeting at your, your weekend because the person scheduled to chair had to leave, I think, to catch a, a flight back home. You know, uh, I've been attending conferences and AA roundups and conventions uh, since very, very early in my sobriety, and they've always uh, been a real shot in the arm for my sobriety and my AA growth. And one of the real fringe benefits for me uh, of these conferences are the friends that we make. And believe me, this weekend, my cup runneth over. Um, I, I feel that I've just, uh, I'll be leaving Winnipeg with so many new friends in Manitoba, but also from, from kind of all points in North America. And I've had some opportunities this weekend to talk things over with our speaker this morning, Dave. And, uh, and I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart when I say uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to one of my new AA friends, Dave from Fresno. Hi, everybody. My name is Dave, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. If I didn't know better, I'd think Clancy's group wandered this way. It's good. You know, uh, you're going to see that I unbutton, and I button my coat a lot, and I raise my trousers. And then no chance in the world they're going to fall off. But I need that reassurance. <laughs> you know, I, I stand in front of these microphones at, uh, at an AA meeting or at a conference like this, and I'm just as nervous as a kitten, and I don't know what to do with my hands. And this is crazy, you know, because I earn my living talking to people, and they don't make me nervous. But whenever I come into AA meeting, I, I'm, I'm that way, and, and I finally figured out why. See, over there, I'm always telling them what they are supposed to be doing. <laughs> and over here, I'm supposed to tell you about me. And worse than that, you want me to be honest about it. <laughs> You've really hit the tough part. But before anything else, I, I, I do wish to thank the committee for inviting me here, and Heather for suggesting that they do. It, uh, this has been a, uh, oh, I think it's safe to say a, a high point in my sobriety. You'll never know why, and it's not even important that you know why. But it's very important that I tell you that you have become an uh, essential and a very integral part of my sobriety. It was just absolutely important for me that I be here this weekend. And I'm reminded of what happened to me when I was only nine months sober, and I sobered up in Southern California, and down there they have a convention, a very large one. And on the Saturday morning, they always have a thing they call the 365-day meeting, 
and they ask people who've been sober for less than a year to participate in it with 15-minute pitches, and I was asked to do that, and I said, no way. No way. I got here talking too much. I'm not going to do anything here. <laughs> and the fellow that invited me suggested that I should speak to my sponsor, and I did, and I said, and I'm not going to do it. I told the sponsor I wasn't going to do it. He says, why not? And I said, because I have nothing to say. I have absolutely nothing to say. And he said, let me ask you a question, David. Uh, how long have you been sober? And I said, nine months. And he said, well, why don't you tell the folks what it's like to be sober for nine months? And I figured I could do that, and I did. And that's all I've been doing ever since. And that's all I've been doing. Telling people what it's like to be sober. By the grace of God, uh, and to the marvelous fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I uh, have been sober since the day that I came to you people. I'm told that by some people that that's unusual, but I don't believe it. I don't. But you know, I'm supposed to be telling you what it was like and what happened and what I'm trying to be like now. And, and with your permission, I'll do that. And I should preface it by saying that I'm not an expert on anything, not even an expert on myself. I don't know anything about alcoholism. I don't know a thing about uh, what it's like in your life. I only know what a measure of sobriety has done for me. But in order to try to help you to understand just a little bit of it, I've got to go back and tell you what it was like. And you know, that, that's crazy. I'm going to try to tell you the truth, but I'm not promising you that it's the truth. It's my version. <laughs> and none of you were there, so you won't know. <laughs> but you know, I, I never once in my life ever set out to do anything bad. I never once set out to do anything wrong. I never once set out to hurt anybody. I never once set out to screw anybody over. And yet I did all of those things a lot of times, you know, a lot of times. It seemed to be that way from the time I was a little boy. See, I was raised, born and raised in a little town in New Mexico, a place called Gallup, New Mexico. And just to show you how screwy I was, I liked it there, you know. <laughs> I did. See, my people landed in that part of North America about 400 years ago. We'd just simply always been there. And, and uh, you know, we people who, are, uh, who speak Spanish and are Spanish ancestry, we have a way of indicating our regard for someone, if we have any. You know, what we do is we add a prefix to their name, D-O-N, Don. And one grandfather was Don Teofilo, you know, that was neat. And the other was Don David, you know, that was fine. And my father was Don Miguel in that little town. And that was just great. People knew who they were. They respected them highly. And I knew that it was when it was my turn, it would be the same way, right? Didn't work that way, but that was my plan. <laughs> what happened instead is that a depression came upon the land. And uh, if you lived in the States at that time, especially if you lived in Gallup, New Mexico, you watched every Okie in the world going out to California, you know. Times were tough and they were looking for something better. And they all came going right through Gallup on Highway 66. And toward the end of that migration, well, we just got on the tail end of it and followed them out to California. 
And on January 1st, 1942, I wound up in California. And, and uh, I met the beginnings of an education, the likes of which I never believed. This doesn't mean anything to you folks up here, but I'll share it with you anyhow. You know, when I was in the middle of my high school years at that time, I was 15 years old, and uh, I had, uh, for the first time ever, met that which we now today call racial prejudice. See, I didn't know that those folks thought that we were different. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that they, they thought that because my father spoke with a different accent than their father spoke with, that they were somehow better than me, you know. I didn't know that. And I didn't know any of these things. And what really cinched it up that there something was different was when, um, this is all history now, uh, when I was in high school in Los Angeles, the World War II was on, and, and they had a bunch of sailors in, in Los Angeles that decided that they didn't like Mexicans either. And I was coming home from high school one day, and I was downtown Los Angeles at 7th and Broadway, that's right downtown, when the sailor riots occurred, and they were just taken, uh, what for, from all of the Mexican people, and this included me, and I found myself standing on the corner of 7th and Broadway in my shorts. No pants, just shorts. Madder than hell. Books under my arm and not knowing what to do. And I was so mad that tears were coming down my eyes. And a very benevolent lady took her sweater off and tied it around me and gave me 10 cents to go on home. I did. And I swore then that you bastards would never do that to me again. None of you. But you know, I was smart enough to know then that if I was all by myself, I couldn't fight you all. Because you were too many. And so what I'd have to do is just simply be smarter than any of you. Fortunately, that was easy. <laughs> You know, I started to do it by, in school by being the smartest kid in school, and I was. I was. I had a mission. You were just going to school. And I did it on the athletic field, too, you know. It wasn't just a matter of being on the ball team. I was, and I was the captain of that team, and I was the star of that team. And it worked out that way, and then I graduated from high school. And I went right into the Navy. And in the Navy, nothing particularly exciting happened to me. I spent... Uh, almost five years complete in the U.S. Navy. I went in, and the only thing of any significance that occurred to me is that I, I was weaned in the Navy, you know. That's it. I learned how to drink. That's all. You know, if you're 17 years old, coming on to 18, and you're in the Navy, probably the most important thing you have to do is to become a man, right? And I learned how to do that. You just pour enough liquor inside you, and you become an instant man right away quick, just like that. And, and I did that for as long as they let me, and then they discharged me, and I came out of the Navy. And I don't know, I can't claim any hero status anywhere along the line. But one good thing happened there. Down in the States, you see, we had a thing called the GI Bill of Rights. And with that, I knew that I could go to university now. They'd pay, they'd pay the way. And I did. Because, by God, I was still setting out to show you. And, and I went to university... I don't know how anybody else decided what they would study. I have no idea. 
I know how I decided. I first thing I did was go over to the placement office and see who was earning most money. And uh, then I decided to do that, and that's why I decided to study accountancy. I decided to study accounting, and I got my degrees in accounting. I was very fortunate. I took to it like a duck to water, and in my last year at university, I took and passed the examination as a certified public accountant. You call them chartered up here, don't you, huh? And here I was, uh, graduated from the university with this, with this qualification, and I only had to put in a couple of years to get my uh, internship done, and that was going to be it, and by God, you were going to have to pay attention. And I went to work for an outfit down in downtown Los Angeles, and it was the most marvelous experience of my life. You know, I went to work for this guy who, who this fellow taught me the magic of the martini lunch. Any of you who haven't learned it, I mean, I don't know how you did it, but I learned something very quick. I hadn't been working for this guy for a couple of months, and one day Sandy says to me, let's go out to lunch. And I found out that uh, you didn't have to come back until 3 o'clock if you went out with the boss. <laughs> so I'd go out with him at noontime and come back at 3, and that was wonderful. And that was great, and I thought that was very sophisticated and wonderful. And, and one day, uh, this guy, Sandy, also, uh, I was going home, it was 5 o'clock, and he says, well, why don't you wait out the traffic, Dave, all this traffic. See, I lived in Pasadena at the time, just 10 miles north of downtown Los Angeles on a freeway. And he says, uh, why don't you wait out the traffic? And I said, where would you do that, Sandy? And he says, the Biltmore Bar seems like a likely place. And <laughs> so I learned how to wait out the traffic in the Biltmore Bar. Now mind, this, my goodness, this is over 30 years ago. I have no idea what the traffic is like between downtown Los Angeles and Pasadena today. But would you believe me if I told you that in those days it wouldn't let up until 9.30 or 10 at night? <laughs> I learned all kinds of things from this guy, Sandy. You know, it wouldn't do for me to tell you that Sandy was an alcoholic, would it, huh? That would be for him to say. But, you know, I can tell you this about Sandy. I, I can tell you that he lost his, uh, his health behind drinking. And I can tell you that he lost his business behind drinking. And I can tell you that he lost his family behind drinking. And I have a sponsor, you know. And my sponsor says, well, you know, Dave, if it looks like a duck, and if it quacks like a duck, and if it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. <laughs> and... I have half an idea Sandy was a duck. <laughs> anyway, he must have taught me other things as well, you know, because I was just booming along. And I must have learned some accounting from him as well, because before I was 30 years of age, I was offered a position as the controller of a hotel and casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. It was to be my job to go over there and uh, complete the construction of this place, and to be in charge of all their fiscal affairs once it opened up. And I thought, by God, they're paying attention, you know. <laughs> I just knew it. I just knew it. Because how many little Mexican kids did you know who were in Las Vegas, huh? I was there, by God. And they offered me a salary the likes of which I never believed I'd earn in my life. And I knew that I had it made. And I went to work at that place, and everything was just exactly like they said it was. The salary was great, the working conditions were wonderful, 
The opportunity of, of learning was excellent. And I was on that job uh, until I wasn't there anymore. <laughs> People used to ask me why I left. And I would tell you, well, it's this way. I came to find out that the principals of this hotel and casino were members of the Mafia. And how would it look for a rising young professional like myself to be associated with people like that? And obviously I had to terminate our relationship. That's what I'd tell you. The surprising thing is how many of you believed it, you know. <laughs> but this is an honest program, and I'm supposed to tell you what happened. Well, what happened is I was fired is what happened, you see. See, we had, we had five bars in this joint, and I was always down there taking inventory. <laughs> and they didn't like it, and they cut me loose. And just to show you what real bastards these people were that I was working for, when they cut me loose, they gave me a year's termination pay. Now, wasn't that rotten? <laughs> With this, I decided to open up my own accounting practice. And those no-good rats went out and hustled clients for me and made me a success. That shows you what kind of bad people they were. They weren't what I was telling you at all. But I think more important than that, it tells you something about me. It tells you that gratitude is not exactly my long suit, you know. And it tells you that uh, truthfulness isn't either. If I'm going to tell you about me, you'd better believe that I'm never going to look very bad in the telling. Well, anyway, this business was a success. And I say, why wouldn't it be with all the help that I was getting? After a while, I had to open up a second office over in Beverly Hills. And I was commuting between Las Vegas and Beverly Hills on a daily basis. I'd get up in the morning and living in Las Vegas, and I'd get down to McCarran Field. About 6 o'clock, so I could get a flight to Los Angeles and be in the office there at 8 o'clock. I'd stay there till noontime leave as close to noontime as I could so I could get back to the office in Las Vegas and be there till the afternoon. Stay there till about 5.30 or 6. By now, I'd also picked up a couple of supper clubs that I, that I was trying to run. And I'd go out there and stay there until midnight and then get up in the morning and do it all over again. And again, and again, and again, and again. And I began to wonder about what in the God's name are you doing this for, David? What the heck are you trying to prove? You know, by then, even I was smart enough to figure that being a little frog in a little pond isn't such big stuff. And I didn't know why I was doing it. But, so I set my mind to the problem. With me, that's almost always disastrous, you know. I set my mind to the problem, and I figured out, what's the matter here, David? And I figured out, all by myself, I figured out what the matter was. And I determined that the matter was that every single thing in the world that I was doing was for David. I wasn't doing anything at all for another soul in the whole world. And, and then I uh, decided I'd do something about that. And I entered into what my friend, uh, Ungrateful Bud, calls the noble period of my life, you know. I determined, by God, that's right. I've got to start doing something for other people. I've got to start doing things for other folks as well as for myself. And right about that time, I, I was offered a position as, an, as a professor at the university in San Francisco. And I thought, by God, that's right. You know, I could go up there and share my wit and wisdom with those young people, and then one day they'd be just like me. And wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> Not being very impetuous, 
In 60 days' time, I sold all my business down south, and I'm now in San Francisco, and I'm a college professor. Hot damn, huh? I don't know whether that impresses you or not, but boy, did it impress me, you know. <laughs> you know, the little Mexican kids is just really showing them now, wasn't he, huh? And I went up to San Francisco, you know, and from the moment I walked in front of that classroom, I knew I'd found my niche in life. God meant for me to be a teacher. That's the way it was. You know, I walked in front of the classroom and just loved it, just loved it. And I'm a good instructor, and I love the work, and I like the young people, and everything was just absolutely wonderful. And I knew it was going to be that way for the rest of my life, you know. I just knew that it was. Now, this is going to surprise you. <laughs> that university had been there for a hundred years before I arrived on the scene. But they didn't know how to run it. <laughs> and I felt great gratitude to these people for having allowed me to come up there and find my niche in life. So I figured that I owed them something. And so I made a catalog listing of all of the errors they were committing. And because my mind is so great and wonderful, I gave them a solution to each one of their problems. And toward the end of the academic year, I asked for and received uh, an appointment with the dean of the School of Business Administration, and I shared my wisdom with him. Now, you just know he appreciated it, right? <laughs> to answer the question that has to be in your mind, no, he didn't fire me. He also didn't renew my contract, you know. <laughs> but I figured that's no big deal. That's no big deal. You know, any dummy can teach accounting. I just proved that. <laughs> and I figured, you know, if you're going to teach, what you should do is you should have some subject matter with real substance to it. Something that would allow you to manifest the qualities of character that are very obviously your own, if you need. And so I looked around at that very university there, they... They were offering a master's degree in theology, and I thought, by God, that's it. I'd get my master's degree in theology. You know, the study about God and man's relationship to him. And I thought, that's what I'd do. And I could go out there, and, 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 and I did. And I got that master's degree in theology there with the idea that I could go out and tell you all about God. And God and you, and you and God, and you and each other. And, and, and I did that. I got that degree, and then I went down to a little town south of San Francisco, a place called Salinas. And I persuaded a monsignor down there to allow me to set up a little institute of theology. And I did that. And God, they just loved me in Salinas, you know? They just... Incidentally, have you noticed as I go through this tale of nonsense years, I don't talk just a whole lot about drinking. But I just go on, let you, you can fit it in anywhere, okay? <laughs> Anyway, they loved me in Salinas, you know, and I, I was just barely around working my way through. One day I came up to this monsignor and I said, Monsignor, I have a little problem. This is what's your problem. I said, well, every once in a while I run across somebody who uses to speak to a priest, and I'm not a priest. What should I do about it? Oh, he said, no problem, David. Put a little index card and put their name and address and phone number on it and put it on the corner of my desk here and we'll take care of it. That's easy, reasonable. There were four of them there, and only one of me was here now. So I took the first index card on there, then the second, 
then the term, and then the fiftieth, not Polly, John. See, you thought one thing you didn't know is how many screwed up people I knew, you know. And uh, one day I just started talking about it. I said, Monsignor, you know these cars I'm putting on the desk, and he said, what about them? And I said, well, they really wish to speak to someone. Oh, he says, I know that, David, and we get to them just to see if we can, but uh, they're very busy here. I said, no, you don't understand, Monsignor. They really have a problem. He says, well, you don't seem to understand. I said, we'd get to them as soon as we could. And I looked at them and I said, well, you know, it's clear. One of us doesn't understand. I said, you know, to be a priest means that you're supposed to be a service to the people. And don't those people are not service. He looked at me and he said, you know, David, I've been a priest for over 30 years now. And I think I know what the job entails. And I looked at him and I said, you may have been a priest for 30 years, but I don't think you've snapped the idea yet. And he looked at me and he said, if you're so smart about being a priest, how come you aren't one? He hugged me there, didn't he? You just know what I had to do, right? It's his idea. With some great thought in mind, I went over to Fresno and I asked the bishop over there if he'd accept me as a candidate for the first step of his diocese, and he served me and said, yes. So at age 36, I went to seminary to become a priest. Now, I know there are some newcomers here in the group. Hold up your hand for newcomers. Probably people with less than six months to die. Okay. I'm going to say now I'm directing the view, okay? Of course, you can listen if you want to. You know, I have no idea whether you newcomers turn on fire and sober for the rest of your life a day at a time or not. Only you know that. Lord knows I don't have any idea whether you turn on going to seminary or not. But can I suggest if you haven't turned the firmer, you don't do the lottery? I'm here to tell you that seminary is no place for practicing alcoholics. Everyone with the heart on those places says you don't drink. I mean, everywhere. And I went to that seminary there, and I lived by everywhere I had the first year. I'm telling you, that was the meanest year I've ever put in my life. There was just 10 minutes of sobriety in the whole year. But it was just... Good with that country down, that's what it was. That was the meanest year I've ever lived in my life, and I wouldn't go through that again if it was to make me perfect under there. I mean, it was bad. Fortunately, summertime came, and I went back to California, and I got it there. I went back that seminary, you know, and, and I figured it out. I figured, oh, those rules are for the boys that are coming here, and whatever I was at this stage in my life, I'm not a boy, and so the rules didn't apply to me. And so for the next few years, they ignored me, and I ignored them.
that I was going to go out and serve God's people. And I went to the bishop and he says, oh, do I have a nice assignment for you? And I says, wonderful. He says, it's a little farming town, a place called Porterville in California in the Central Valley here. And I said, wonderful. He says, the people are so cooperative and nice, you're really going to like them. And I said, great. And he says, it's a really good assignment. And I said, fine, fine, I'll go, I'll go. And I went down there and I thought, isn't this wonderful? I'm going to go out and I'm going to serve God's people. I'm going to serve whomever I find that needs service. And I would look for those who, who were in greatest need of help. And on the way down there, I found them. <laughs> I found them. I found them. First day on the way down, I found them. It was the farm workers, you know. Those poor devils had the worst of everything. They had the worst jobs. They had the worst pay. They had the worst housing. They had the worst education. They just had the worst period. And so I determined I'd spend the rest of my life working with farm workers. And you might remember that right about that time, there was a farm workers union getting started. A fellow by the name of Cesar Chavez came along there, and they called a strike in the grape fields. Remember that? And, and Lord, I just, I just joined the strike, you know. And, and I used to preach brilliant and eloquent sermons about the justice of the farm worker cause and the injustice of the growers and the ranchers and all those bad old oppressors, you know. And, and I was preaching brilliantly and eloquently this way uh, for about a year when the pastor of the place says, David, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, sure, Joe, what about? He says, what you're preaching? And I says, hey, Joe, I just preached from the book. I didn't write it, you know. And incidentally, if you want to know, just go check the book of Amos. That's my book, you know. And if people wouldn't listen to Amos, I'd preach them from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. He's pretty good. <laughs> and if they wouldn't listen to Amos or Jeremiah, I'd level them with Moses and just get on with it, you know. And, and anyway, Joe says, you've got to tone it down, Dave. And I says, Joe, I can't tone it down. What's your problem? My preaching isn't your problem. What's your problem? He said, well, David, the problem is this. When you got here, our Sunday collection every Sunday was about $1,200. And I said, what's wrong with that? He says, nothing. He said, with $1,200, we can pay off the debt on the school. We can fix things up and even save a couple of bucks. And I said, so? He said, you've been so brilliant and so eloquent that you managed to get it from 1200 a Sunday to 600 a Sunday and is heading south. <laughs> I forgot to tell you that the people that were supporting this church were growers and ranchers and all those bad old oppressors, you know. And so I looked at Joe in the eye and I said, it doesn't make a damn, Joe. If they don't like what I'm preaching, we'll just close their damn church. Well, I'm here to tell you we didn't close their damn church. I was transferred is what happened, you know. <laughs> transferred to another little town in the valley, a place called Corcoran. A year and a half later, I'm sitting in front of the bishop, and he's waving his finger, saying, tone it down. I'm saying, I can't. He said, you can, you must. And I said, no, I can't. I won't. And I said, but I have a solution for you, bishop. And he says, what's your solution? I said, well, sir, uh, Cesar Chavez and the union want me to go to work for them full time as a chaplain. I want to go to work with them full time. The people in Carkin want me to go almost anywhere full-time. <laughs> but he wouldn't transfer me there. What he did instead was to transfer me to be the chaplain of the state prison up in Tehachapi. I guess he figured, what harm can this dummy do up there? You know? <laughs> if they didn't like what I was preaching about, what were they going to do about it? <laughs> but it didn't work out that way. No, sir. I went up to the state prison there, and from the moment I set foot in that joint, I knew those were my people. <laughs> I didn't know why they were my people, but they were my people. 
Took me many years in sobriety to figure that one out, you know. I went up there with the same zeal and fervor that I do everything else, and I was serving all those people up in Patchapi. And in six months' time, I figured out that the state of California didn't know the first thing about running a prison system. <laughs> so I began telling everybody that I could. I'd corner anybody that I could and telling about all the mistakes they were making, one after the other. And I'd buttonhole anybody that would listen, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that most people disagreed with me, right? But you're wrong. Almost everybody that I talked to agreed with me. And it wasn't until I sobered up that I figured that one out. The people that were doing the agreeing all were wearing blue denims, you know. <laughs> anyway, one day after I'd been there a little over a year, the superintendent of this place says, uh, Say, Father David, I understand you'd like to go to work full-time with the Farm Workers Union. And I said, yes, I would, and I've asked the bishop for that permission, but he won't give it to me. And he looked at me and he said, I'll make you bet that if you ask him one more time, he will. <laughs> you know, by now I was learning something, you know. The Catholic Church, being a priest in the Catholic Church, pretty good job. You don't hardly ever get fired. You get moved around a whole lot, you know. So I went down and I asked the bishop if he'd give me a, a permission to go to work full-time with the Farm Workers Union, and he said yes. And now everything's going to be all right. And I went to work with the Farm Workers Union, you know, and we were on strike, and you remember we boycotted everything up here too, everywhere, you know. We weren't very partial. And uh, so we picketed and we boycotted and picketed some more and boycotted some more and picketed some more and boycotted some more. We won that strike, my God. We won the grape strike. We won it. And then just to show people we weren't prejudiced, what we did is we went over to another valley and pulled a strike in the lettuce fields, you know, and went around and around the lettuce fields in Salinas. <laughs> they know me there. <laughs> they love me in Salinas. That's the place where they changed my name. They did. They did. They changed it from Father David to that goddamn priest, you know. <laughs> They just love me in Salinas, I'll tell you. <laughs> anyway, I was full-time with the Farm Workers Union until I figured out that, you know, Cesar Chavez and those guys don't really know what's best for farm workers. Never mind, they were farm workers and I wasn't. I knew. I put my giant intellect to the problem and I knew. And I tried to tell them and they wouldn't listen. So once again, it came time to move on, to move on. And I asked the bishop if he'd allow me to uh, take over a little parish in a town called Visalia, a little ghetto there, a little Mexican barrio in the north end of town. And I told him I had these marvelous plans, and I had offers of help from all over North America. People would come to help me. And he said, oh, go ahead and do it. That's how much enthusiasm he showed, too. <laughs> and so I went down there to do that, to form this marvelous, marvelous Christian community. It didn't work that way. By now, I, 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 uh, one member of this whole team that we got together wasn't functioning too good. And, and uh, God, it was, um, oh, it was awful. They, they, we'd, we'd, we'd 
you know, people would come out to hear the fiery Father David. All you have to do is tell them it was coming out, and boy, they turned out in numbers. By now, I'd either become famous or infamous, depending upon your point of view. And, 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 and the people would turn out. The only problem was that I couldn't turn out. They'd be there, and I'd be missing. They'd have to come looking for me. And they'd finally find me and said, Come on, Dave, the people are waiting for us. I can't go. can't face them. And this poor guy that was working for me, Ed, Father Ed, said, Come on, Dave, they love you over there. And I said, I don't care what they love. I'm not going. And they keep hitting on me. And they'd say, Why? And I'd give them the best answer any other alcoholic ever had. You've used it yourself, and you know it's a good answer. And he said, Why can't you go, David? And I'd look him right in the eye, and I'd say, Because, that's why. <laughs> Never satisfied him. So I'd fill two tumblers of the good juice, throw it inside myself, and go out and be my fiery father David's self for them. And then I'd walk out among you, and I'd shake your hands and pat your back and looking for the exit sign, see how I could escape from you all. And I did that until I couldn't do it anymore. Then I locked myself in my room, and I wouldn't come out. You know, every Catholic church in the world celebrates Mass at 6 or 8 o'clock in the morning. You know who goes to Mass at 6 o'clock in the morning? Little old men and little old ladies. That's who goes. People who've come to terms with life and with themselves and everything else. And I couldn't face those old people. I just couldn't face them. You know why? Because they knew me for exactly what I was. Oh, they knew that Father David drank too much, and, and they knew that he was short-tempered, and, and they knew that, but he was such a good man, really, and they accepted me anyhow. And I couldn't stand that. And I couldn't stand that. And I didn't know what the matter was. I knew I was squirrely as a tick. I got so screwy that even I recognized it. <laughs> but I didn't know what the matter was. I didn't know what the matter was. And you know, when you're like that, and if you're me, it becomes time to run again. And so I went up to the bishop and I said, Bishop, I don't know what the matter is, but I've got to have a leave of absence see if I can straighten myself out, and he granted it to me. And a friend of mine down in Laguna Beach says, where are you going, Dave? And I said, you don't understand, John, it doesn't make any difference where I'm going. He says, do you have any money? And I says, of course I have no money. What's that got to do with it? I'm just going. Don't you understand? I'm just going. And he said to me, well, look, he said, I've got a big house down here and I'm living by myself. So if you'd like to come on down here and stay with me, you can. And so that's how I wound up in Laguna Beach. I went down there. This guy took me in. I went down there to straighten myself out. And I'll say I straightened myself out. I'll say I did. You know, I have no idea what anybody else's limit is as far as drinking is concerned. But let me tell you my own. It's only possible for me to stay drunk from the first day of July of 1972 until January 23rd, 1973. During that seven-month period, it was just round-the-clock drinking. There wasn't even one day that was remotely called a sober day. Well, you know what I was like at the end of that. My stomach was in such a mouth that I couldn't even breathe. And I'd have to take one or two, wouldn't I? Just to prime the pump, for God's sake. Just to prime the pump. And I had a 90-mile-an-hour hair, and it was just going and going and going and going, and it wouldn't stop, and it wouldn't stop, and I couldn't turn it off, and it wouldn't stop. Then I was a walker and a pacer and a mover about, and my arms and hands and everything had to be moving always. 
I was just going, going and moving and going and moving and going. And I didn't know. I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what was wrong. I knew they were coming for me. Don't know who they were. Don't know why they'd be coming. But they were coming. And I remember the phone would ring in this house and I'd say, oh, for God's sake, Johnny. I'd taken a lot of money from a lot of people to do a lot of work for them that I hadn't done. And the phone would ring and I'd say, Johnny, tell them I'm not here. He says, I can't do that. He says, I said, why not? He says, because I'm not here either. <laughs> and it got worse. It got worse, you know. Oh, it got so bad. I remember I used to lay on the couch in his house and say, oh my God, if you're for real, and if you're a merciful God, just turn it off. Just turn it off. But he wouldn't do it. But I learned, I learned that if I poured enough booze into me, if I poured enough booze into me, something magical would always happen. That blessed, wonderful time called passing out time. <laughs> and I don't know how you felt about passing out, but I thought it was great because, you see, by this time I couldn't sleep. I couldn't lie down and go to sleep like other people do because I don't mean once in a while. I mean every single time that I'd lie down and try to go to sleep and close my eyes, those things would crawl out from under the bed and from behind the dressers. And they'd come over and they'd try to get me. And I couldn't let them get me. And so I'd have to lie there with a baseball bat beside myself to fight them off. I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what to do. It just got so bad that I didn't know what to do. And it would be nice to say, and then I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't work that well. What happened is this. This guy that had taken me in, during this seven-month period, he was going drink for drink with me. And for the end of seven months, he was just as screwy as me, you know. And he was always talking about retiring, 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 retiring. And on this day, January 23rd, 1973, I said to him, Johnny, for Christ's sake, quit talking about retiring, will you? And he says, why? I said, because you're not going to be able to retire. That's why. He says, why not? I'm almost old enough. I've got enough years with the company. Why am I not going to be able to retire? And I said, because they're going to fire your ass, John. He says, why would they do that? I said, well, the fact that I'm going to work for three months, may I come do it? <laughs> and he says, what do you think the matter is? And I said, hey, John, I know what's the matter with you. And he says, what's the matter with me? I said, you drink too much. <laughs> and he said, what do you think we ought to do about it? <laughs> and I knew exactly what to do for John. You see, when I've been up there at the state prison, I have met you AA people. I've been the sponsor of the AA group, for God's sake, you know? That's something. I didn't know those guys were 12 stepping me. But anyway, uh, I said, if you call AA, they'll go for pieces. Will they come? And I said, of course they'll come. And so I called Central Office in Orange County for them to come fix John. And they gave me another telephone number. And I called that number in Laguna Beach. And I called it, and I asked for those folks to come fix John. And the guy that answered the telephone in Laguna Beach says, we got a meeting going on down here in just a little bit. Do you think you can get your sick 
friend John down here. Now, that's got to be the dumbest question in the world to ask a drunk with keys to the car. Can I get him down there? Of course I can get him down there. We were living in a place called Laguna Niagara, which is exactly seven miles away from the club. There's a four-lane highway going down the ocean there. I got John to that meeting. I don't remember the ride. John said it was a hell of a ride, you know. Anyway, we get to this meeting, and they're, they're sitting around. There's about 20 or 30 of them. And like any self-respecting newcomer, I'm sitting way at the back, you know. And they had a book just like this one. And they'd read a little, and they'd talk a little. And they'd read some more, and they'd talk some more. They read some more, they talked some more, and then the meeting came to an end. And this guy walked right up to me, and he said, you must be the fellow that called. And I said, I am, but how did you know? And I said, this is my sick friend, John. <laughs> and I told him all about John. I told him what a neat guy John was and how he'd taken me in when I had no place to go and how he had worked for this company for so many years and dedicated himself to it and, and how undoubtedly they were going to fire him. I don't know what I didn't tell him about John. And he just stood there and listening, you know. And about 15 minutes into this tirade, he says, uh, Mind if I ask you a question? I says, no, it seems fair. <laughs> he said, uh, don't you think maybe you have a problem too? Now, he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> he shouldn't have done that. You see, that was the one question that I would allow no one to ask me. And that dummy went ahead and did it, you know. <laughs> and I looked at him... And to this day, I do not know why I answered as I did. I said, yeah. And it was all over. It was all over. Because what in God's name is an alcoholic priest good for anyhow? Whom could you possibly serve? Whom could you do anything for? It was over, and I just didn't care. I was through, I was finished, and I didn't care. And that guy said to me that what I should do is to go home and come back to a meeting the next day at that club at noontime. And I told him I'd try. And he says, and see if you can come here without having had a drink beforehand. And I says, oh, that, that, that's impossible. He says, try. So I went home, and for the first night in months, in months that I can remember, I fell asleep, and those things didn't crawl out from under the bed to try to get me. And I woke up at the same time I always do when I have nothing to do. Six o'clock in the morning, I'm wide awake. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, my routine was to by now have poured a couple down me, but I said, no, I can't do that. The man said to have a a shot at not having a drink. And so I made a pot of coffee, and I drank it, whole pot. And I made another one. And I drank it. <laughs> then I jumped in the shower and took a long, cold shower, and I put the pot of coffee on again. I went for a long walk, and I came by and drank another pot of coffee. And I went for another long walk. And I came back, and I jumped in the shower again. 
And I had another pot of coffee. And now it's seven o'clock. <laughs> I'm not going to make it. I am just not going to make it. I like to remember that morning, and I do very often, because I learned something. I learned something. I learned that left to my own devices, I learned how long I can stay sober. I can stay sober any time with a lot of coffee and many walks and many showers from 6 o'clock in the morning until the meeting at noontime. I'm personally convinced that if that meeting had been at 12.15, you'd never have seen me. But I did get to that meeting, and I didn't have a drink. And there was a lady leading that meeting. Most beautiful woman I've ever laid eyes on. I don't mean just physically attractive, though she was. I mean clean through beautiful. And she was talking about hope, and she was talking about trust, and she was talking about it all in the context of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought, oh, my God, if I could just get a sliver of what that lady's talking about, I'll settle for that. And it seemed important to me at that time to tell the people there that I was a, a Catholic priest and that I didn't know what to do. I don't know why I told them. Didn't make any difference anyhow. And that lady said, you don't ever have to take a drink again as long as you live if you don't want to. I said, lady, I haven't wanted to for a long time. Doesn't seem to make any difference. And she said, you don't ever have to think again as long as you live if you don't want to. And I said, you don't hear too good. <laughs> she said, I don't know how to do that. Oh, she says, why don't you give the problem to somebody that can handle it? And I says, gladly, who? <laughs> well, she says, you of all people should know. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> well, she says, why don't you give it to God? And I said, oh, hell. That's, that's my line. You know, just, just, just for a bare hour there, I felt I'd come to something, and then she pulls that stuff on me, you know. And she says, why don't you try it? And I thought, well, hell, I knew it was too good to be true. I knew it was too good to be true. And so I went on home. We had a deck out there about twice as long as this platform, looking out over the ocean. I'm walking up and down that deck and thinking, oh, hell. You know, it just, I want it to be over, and it should be over, and damn it, it's not going to be over. And then stupid lady said I should give something to God, and hell, I don't know how to be done. I don't know. And I don't know where the moment of clarity came from. I haven't any idea. But it suddenly dawned on me, God, I don't give a damn. You know, the lady said to give it to you, you got it. If you want me to die drunk, I'll die drunk. If you don't want me to die drunk, I won't die drunk. I don't care. I find out don't care. But I'm going to go do what those people said I should do. And I'll try to do it to the best of my ability. And that's it. They invited me to go to a meeting that night, and I went to the meeting that night. And there was a guy talking there, funniest man I've ever heard, in or out of AA, ever in my life. And I just sat there holding my sides from laughing so hard when it dawned on me that I hadn't laughed that hard maybe 25 or 30 years. 
And I just broke down and cried in the middle of all those people. And then those folks told me that I should come to meeting the next night, and I did. And then those folks told me to come to the meeting the next night, and I did. And I did, and I did, and I did. And I was doing just everything they told me to do because I didn't know what else to do. Would you like to hear the first thing that I heard you tell me? Not necessarily the first thing that you did tell me, but the first thing that I remember. You told me, come on in, Dave, you're home now. We don't care where you've been, we don't care what you've done, doesn't make any difference here. Just come on in, Dave, you're home now. And I hadn't been on any place that could even be remotely called home for such a long, long time, if ever. And you told me that I could come and I could just be with you. And you didn't care. You didn't care that I was obnoxious and you didn't care that I was contentious and you just didn't care. You let me be with you. And you let me hang around. And you told me things that I'd never, ever imagined. You told me that I had a disease and that it had a name. The name was alcoholism. You told me that my body was allergic to the ingestion of ethyl alcohol and that every time I put it in my body, regardless of what shape it took, it reacted differently on me than it did other folks. And by God, that's the truth. And you told me that I was so obsessed that if I even had one drink, I wouldn't be able to predict with any degree of certitude what might happen after that. I thought, my God, that's also the truth. That's also the truth. And then you said something else to me that made a lot of difference. You told me that what I had was a disease and that what I was was a sick man trying to get well not a bad one trying to get good. That was like a revelation, you see, because I've told you something of the things that God has given to me, and you know, these are things that some men die for, but not me. One by one, I could pitch him out the window. One by one, I was a total ingrate and therefore bad, and you said, no, Dave, sick, yes, bad. You don't start to come to that yet. And I started doing everything that you told me to do. I mean everything. And one of the things that you told me to do was to go to a roundup similar to this in Palm Springs, California. And I didn't want to go to Palm Springs, California. Because Palm Springs, California looks just like Gallup, New Mexico, and I don't like it today, you know. Too damn hot, too damn windy, and there's going to be too damn many people there. And you said, go anyhow. And I went, and I owe you more. Of a Sunday morning, just about this time, there was an old man talking there. I'd never even seen him before. Later came to be my sponsor, but he was there that Sunday morning, and here's what I heard him say. He said, if you're looking for God up there somewhere, you're never going to find him, because he's not up there. If you're going to find him, you have to find him where he is. And he's right in here. Now, as a Catholic priest, I must have said the same thing 10,000 times before that morning myself. But for whatever reason, the God that is allowed it to drop from up here in my head where it was only information down to about two inches back of my belly button. And I knew 
I knew that he's right in here. And once again, in the middle of 5,000 people, I just sat there and cried like a baby. I thought, my God, isn't this something? Here I am, a man who purports to serve God, and I have to come amongst a bunch of drunks to be introduced to him. Because, you see, there's a tremendous difference between knowing about God and knowing him. And you introduced me to him, and I owe you. I owe you. And down where I was going to meetings, they would keep telling the newcomers that if you don't pray, you're going to get drunk. They don't even try to spare their feelings, you know, <laughs> or their sensitivities. They just flat out say, if you don't pray, you're going to get drunk. And I went up to this friend of mine, his name is Frank. And I said, Frank, I've got a problem. And he says, what's your problem? I said, well, you keep saying that if I don't pray, I want to get drunk. And I don't want to get drunk. Because I don't want to die. Not that way. He said, what's your problem? I said, well, I, you might find it hard to believe of a Catholic priest, but I've forgotten how to pray. I don't know how to pray. It's been so long. If I go into a church or a chapel or a quiet spot and sit down, I just fall asleep. And if I get on my knees, my mind goes wherever my mind goes. It just goes. And I don't know how to pray, and I don't know what to do. He said, let me ask you a couple of questions, David. He said, do you really believe God's in here like you say? And I said, of course I believe it. And then he asked, do you believe he's inside of me? And I said, yes. I believe that, too. Let me ask you another question. He says, do you believe he's within each and every member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous? I thought for a minute, and I said, yeah, yeah, I believe that. He said, well, David, as sick as you are, your prayer had better be talking to another alcoholic on a daily basis. And I thought about that. I said, my God, that's right. If he's there, and I know that he is, whether you know it or not, doesn't make any difference whether you know it or not. I know that he is. And if I tell you how it is with me, by God, he's going to hear it, isn't he? Huh? And not as an eavesdropper to the conversation either, but as a party to the conversation. If I tell you about my hopes and if I tell you about my fears, if I tell you about my joys and if I tell you about my confusion, if I just tell you about me, by God, he's going to hear it. And that's the reason that I went to AA meetings every day, every day, every day. For over four years, I didn't miss a day. Because I didn't know how to pray. And that was the only prayer of which I was capable. Now, I don't know whether it sounds like prayer to you or not, and I don't really care. I'm happy to report to you that today my father and I have some nice long talks. But in those days, that was the only prayer I could make. And I did it on a daily basis because I needed it to stay sober. And the God that I've come to know, he speaks to me, too. Oh, no voices out of clouds. No big winds. None of that stuff. No. The God that I've come to know, when I have to know something, he puts it in your mouth and you tell it to me. And then he unplugs my ears so that I can hear you. My sponsor says that I have become teachable. 
And he defines being teachable as being willing to learn from the experience of others. Isn't that neat? I have become teachable. I have become teachable. And you know, if you're as overeducated and underinformed as I am, learning is very difficult. <laughs> but even I have become teachable, and that's a miracle. I'm here to tell you that every single thing that I know about living, I have learned in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You told me, amongst other things, that I should work the steps. My sponsor kept quoting the book, Did you took them yet, he said. Did you took them? What step are you tooking, is the way he used to say it. <laughs> These are the steps we took. That's what it says. And as the process of doing that, I've come to learn something about David. You know, I used to loathe myself. Of all the people in the world that I didn't want to be around, I was the first on that list. If I could have ever found a way of escaping me, I would have done it. I didn't like me. I didn't like anything I'd done. I was ashamed of me. I was an asshole. Sometimes I think I still am. But you know, you told me to take that inventory anyhow. And boy, I did. I did. And I'd sit and I'd think and I'd write. And I'd sit and I'd think. And I went over to my sponsor and I shared it with him. And he listened. And he listened. And when I was all through, I can still remember. Mine, this is almost 13 years ago. And I can still remember what he said when I was all through. He looked at me and he said, Son, he says, you're a mess. But I love you. That's it. But I love you. I love you. Not anyhow, but I love you. And that began a process of starting a whole new love affair in my life. And I like to say it that way. And I say it with no sense of arrogance at all. But I began in the process of learning to love David. My logic, I think, is sound. I have no doubt that God loves me. And you know, if I'm going to pretend to love God, I've got to love those whom he loves. And I guess I'm on that list, too. I began in the process of loving David. And I learned to like myself, warts and all, you know. This is the way it is. Not the way I'd like it to be. This is the way it is. And I found out that if I learned to like myself, warts and all, learning to love you and your warts was an absolute cinch. And a whole new process began. You see, I had seen people all of my life who had the capacity of being very close to other folks. But I'd never been close to anybody in my life. Envious, jealous, but close never. Not anyone. It'd be nice to say, not your mother, not your father, not anyone. I respected them. I honored them. But I went close to them. And you allowed me to become close to you. You, you taught me that I could have the same emotions that other folks have. 
And I could tell you that you are important to me. And I can tell every one of you here today that your sobriety is important to me. And you've proved to me over and over and over again that I can count on you. Over and over again. Let me tell you a story. This guy that had taken me in, he never made our program. He never did. He just couldn't make it. But he did get cancer about seven years ago. He come up cancer of the lungs. And he was into a hospital and out of hospital. And uh, he says to me one day, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go home. Can't I go home? And I said, my God, here's the man that took me in when I was dying. Why can't I take him to his own home? I said, of course you can, Johnny. Let's go. We checked him out of hospital and took him home. And uh, after I got him home, I thought, my God, now what the hell do I do? You know, I didn't have enough money to hire somebody to come take care of him. And I was teaching at the university at the time, and I had to be there. And just luckily, again, it was Sunday evening, a friend of mine came in, Catholic priest on the program, a name of Frank, another Frank. And I told Frank all about the problem that I had. I didn't know what I was going to do with John, because I had to teach all week. Then I had an AA retreat that I was going to give that weekend, and I didn't know. And Frank very casually says, uh, have you asked your friends to come over and help you? And I said, you don't understand, Frank. They all work. They all work. And they can't come. And after I got through with that explanation, he says, uh, well, have you asked any of your friends? I, I said, no, Frank, I haven't asked any of my friends. And he said, David, you are without a doubt the most arrogant man I've ever met in my life. You travel all over North America telling us how we should love one another, how we should depend upon one another, how we should be of service to one another. And now it's your turn, and you're too damned arrogant to ask for help. And he ripped my hide up one side and down the other and around twice. And then he left. <laughs> and there was nothing for me to do but to pick up the phone and call somebody. And I called this guy, and I said, Bill, here's my problem. And I outlined the problem. And I said, could you come tomorrow? He said, sure, I'll be there at 6 in the morning. How late are you going to be gone? I said, till about 7.30 at night. He said, fine. And I called somebody else for Tuesday and somebody else for Wednesday and somebody else for Thursday. And we did that for the next nine months. And people were calling me to see if they could come. I guess... Maybe not, but it's certainly the longest AA meeting I've ever been to. It lasted over nine months. And when he died, we had a, he wasn't a Catholic, but I buried him in a Catholic church anyhow. <laughs> That'll show him. And you taught me the meaning of love in an active way, not intellectually. 
And not merely verbally, but intellectually, it doesn't count. It's what's in the heart that counts. You taught me how to be of service. And there was a guy that used to run around giving retreats to a guy named Father Barney. He's from the state of Oregon, was. He's dead now, too, but he allowed me to help him. And then you allowed me to give retreats. And it seemed time for me to go back to the diocese from which I'd come, and I'd been absent eight years, and I had no idea whether they'd accept me back or not. And uh, got a new bishop up there, and he said, David, come on home. And it seemed appropriate to go back home to Fresno, California. And I thought, how in the world can anybody go there after living by the ocean to go into a little farming town? You know, not such a little town, but it's an agricultural area. And it's the easiest thing in the world when it doesn't make a damn where you are, doesn't it? Isn't it, huh? I've learned it doesn't make any difference where you are. It's people that are real. And I went back up there, you know. I've left that place in disgrace. And I know that you people hate to hear success stories. I'm going to tell you one anyhow. Because the success is not mine. And I went back up there. And uh, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do. And one thing or another has led to one thing or another. At the present time, I find myself to be the the rector of the cathedral. But that means that I'm a fat little priest that they parade out for once in a while. <laughs> and I'm what they call an, the Episcopal vicar. That means that I'm the number two man in the diocese of Fresno. And I'll never forget, the bishop says to me, David, there's only one thing that I shall ever ask of you. And that is, that whenever you go talk anywhere in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you give them my thanks for what they've done for you. And so, that's what I'm doing. On behalf of the Bishop of Fresno, I give you thanks. On behalf of Dave Duran, I can only tell you that I love you. I love you. This particular week, end has been a very vital one in my life. A lot of things are coming down that are inclined to make me feel that I'm important. A lot of things have happened that are inclined me to believe that the decisions that I'm making are my decisions. And what you've all helped me to do this weekend is to remind me once again, because of the wonderful speakers we've had here, but importantly because of your friendship is that, David, you're not worth a damn as a manager. Get out of the managing business and just do his work one day at a time. You know, I'm going to say this because I believe it. I believe that I'm a different man than the one you picked up in Laguna Beach on January 23rd, 1973. I believe that that man died. And I believe that the life that I have now is, as the big book says, a reprieve granted to me on a daily basis, dependent upon the maintenance of a fixed spiritual condition. How can I complain about anything that is mine anyhow?
This life that I have is only mine a day at a time, given to be by my father, to be of service to whomever. My sponsor, before he died, used to say, David, your function is only to love people. Don't make a damn whether they love you back or not. Your function is to serve people. Don't make a damn whether they appreciate it or not. And so this is where I am. I thank you for allowing me to be here. I want you to know that for those of you who are newcomers, that it isn't necessary for you to go out. I recommend you don't. But if you do, I recommend you find a group just like this one to come back to where they understand that it don't make a damn where you've been. They don't care anything about you. Just that you're here and you're trying your best. People, I'll keep you in my heart forever. God love you. God bless you.